we can always end up in binaries like there is no one best way of doing anything there's no one better way of doing anything there's always ways in which some things work and some things don't purposely podcast speaking with social entrepreneurs and charity founders and leaders people who are making the world a better place here's your host mark longbottom a really warm welcome to Purposely with Safina Ahmed. Safina is the head of the John Alleman Foundation. She joined the foundation in 2020 for the City of London Corporation. That year was quite a year for Safina. Not only did she take on a leadership role during a global pandemic, but she was awarded an MBE for services to charity. We go back to the school and university days and we look at the clarity she has formed about her career, a passion for helping people and society, and rebooting philanthropy in a changing world. Don't forget to share with friends, family, and colleagues. If you're on Apple Podcasts, hit subscribe. Enjoy. Safina Ahmed, welcome to Purposey. You're the director of the John Alleman Foundation. What's its mission? What's its purpose? Thank you. Really delighted to be here. And so, yeah, thanks so much for the invite. So, yes, I work for John Elman Foundation. We are a UK-based grant maker. We support work that's happening within civil society in the arts, social action and environment. Our overarching aim is to advance well-being for people, society and the natural world. We do that primarily through our grant making and increasingly through how we invest too. We recognise that by being a good investor, we can also be advancing well-being and our investments are not just about financial return. It's about the kind of good that we can do through those as well. And yeah, that's our ethos. Um, we're a grant maker first and foremost, but we have various other assets like our investments, our ability to work with others and different commitments that we make to try and be the best possible grant maker we can be. It's been formally set up in 1971, but it has a longer history than that, doesn't it? It's a tale of two John Allemans, in a sense. I looked up and found out that the first John Alleman, the father, was the richest man in the UK, which is which is incredible. Tell me a bit about the history that you know, subject to the fact that you haven't been in the job too long, but gives an idea of the history and how it evolves to be what it is today. It's really interesting. I think in many ways we can honour these two founders, or rather one founder, but we don't really know much about them. They kind of disappeared from history. So our founder's father was Britain's richest man, as you say. He built his fortune through shipping primarily, but also through very savvy investments in industries like breweries, newspapers. And he also worked out of the city as an accountant where he would take on businesses that were failing and then kind of transform them so that they were profitable and then sell them at profit. His son, who set us up in 1971 and then unexpectedly died a couple of years later, was different to his father. He was an accountant as well. He had inherited the baronetcy, so he was also Sir John Elliman, but obviously Sir John Elliman II. And he had a much wider range of interests that he pursued. And so he had interests in the arts, for example, he had um, interest in, in the environment and he was a world leading expert in rodents. And he wrote extensively on that subject, as well as more broadly, too, around biodiversity and the environment and nature. And he also had philanthropic interests, which, you know, he, his father had those too. So in short, we are 
we know what we know, but we are also investing and have been for the last year and longer than that too in what we call our history project, very imaginative title. And the idea behind our current phase of the history project is that we have three researchers who are doing a really deep dive into how um, our funds came to be, how how the money was made, um, and also really kind of interrogating the the ethics of that as as well as just the origins of it, and then also getting to know more about the individuals involved with the foundation. So. Our founder has a very interesting sister who was very kind of eminent in the arts and literary scene within the UK and Europe and even parts of the US, actually. So, yeah, we want to bring our history to life and be very kind of honest and transparent about the the good, the bad and everything between, recognising that this is always a nuanced picture. And we look forward to being able to share that story more widely. And it is worth noting that our founder, Sir John Elliman II, was very publicity shy. He really struggled with being the, you know, Britain's richest man. He was very much hounded by the press. He tried to ask them to relent on some of the pressure that they placed on him and the scrutiny that they placed on him, and, and they rarely did. And as you can imagine, Britain's richest man will always be of interest to the tra- tabloids and the broadsheets. But yeah, he, uh, you know, he was not someone who was very public about who he was, and it's been hard to find out more about him. But we, we have discerned more information through this phase of the history project, and we'll be sharing in due course. And so important for charitable foundations is the trust deed, often the most important document. Like, what does your trust deed look like? Is it very prescriptive? Is it quite open and wide, or? It's very broad. So I have kind of a little anecdote about this, which is when the trust uh, was set up, so John Elliman Foundation, it wasn't actually called that. It was set up as three separate trusts back in 1971. And it was kind of the first or one of only a handful that the law firm involved had um, created. Um, And so they kept it very broad and they didn't put too much kind of by way of specificities of you must do this, you mustn't do that. Interestingly, though, we have one stipulation, which is we cannot fund in South South America. And, you know, we could go and change that if we wanted to, but it's not an issue. It's not come up. We are primarily a UK-based funder and we distribute the bulk of our funds in the UK mainland, but we also do fund some work in the UK overseas territories and on the UK overseas territories. That's only environmental work that we support. And South America because? Absolutely no idea. We still got some living links to solicitor that was very junior at the time um, in the firm that set up the foundation. And I mean, I guess it was more just a kind of, this is a new piece of new way of working. And I guess they just wanted to test a little bit about the kind of law around trust deeds. And so they just put in this stipulation around South America. I don't think it was any kind of nefarious anti-South America reason. I think it was more just, you know, we don't get to do this often as a kind of firm and let's try something a little bit different by you know what would it look like to stipulate not funding in South America but you know some of this is anecdotal but there's no kind of specific reason yeah but that is the one place where we we aren't able to fund but we have very broad objects and are able to fund broadly as a result what's nice though in terms of reviewing our history 
we know that arts and environment were areas of work that our founder, Sir John Elliman II, was very passionate about. And so we kind of continue his legacy by being an arts and environment funder. And we used to be a, a welfare funder, but we changed to become a social action funder in, in 2019. But, you know, I think he would have a lot of support for the work that we, you know, the kinds of causes that we support under social action too. So it's nice to know that even though he died only a couple of years after we were set up, the kinds of things that we fund today would have resonated with him. Tell me a little bit about, so you started with the foundation just prior to COVID. What were the trustees saying to you when they hired you? And, um, you know, tell me a little bit about the selection process. Was it a job that you knew that you really wanted and you covered it? So um, let's go back a couple of years here. So I got this job in 2019. And interestingly, I had been on a secondment to City Bridge Trust, which is now Bridge House Estates, for a year. And at the end of that year-long secondment, I was given some coaching. And it was career coaching. And it was about what did I want my career to be? Because I didn't really have this sense of what my set path would be. I was doing roles that were interesting to me and were allowing me to expand my skill set and, you know, policy, learning, strategy. And through this career coaching, I had four sessions with a brilliant coach. And through that, I kind of learned that I did have this kind of desire or ambition to become a director or chief executive of a grant-making foundation. And so it wasn't like I needed to do that tomorrow, but it was just a way of me working out what would the skills I would need to kind of strengthen be in order to get to that goal. And then these roles don't come up very often. And I wasn't searching actively for a new job. I was very kind of content at the City of London Corporation. I had a really broad and engaging and quite difficult at times job there that was keeping me very kind of focused on lots of different things but these jobs don't come up often and so in the summer of 2019 I saw that John Elliman Foundation was advertising and I just felt a real connection to the role not just because it had been this thing that I wanted to do eventually but just because I felt it's really rare that you find a role which is so aligned to what you want to do professionally, but what you care about personally. And, you know, I have a real interest personally and professionally in the arts, social action and environment. I care about the ethics and the effectiveness of philanthropy and how that can be made better. I really love leading teams, organisations, ideas, processes, you name it. And so I just thought, go for it. What's the worst that's going to happen? You don't get it, but it would be worse not to have even tried. And, you know, I went into it confident. I felt that I had something to offer, but I knew that it would be competitive. And, you know, there were over 300 people that applied for my role. It was managed through a recruiter. So I, um, you know, had to do the kind of interviews with the recruiter. Then there was a two-stage process here at John Elliman Foundation with a couple of panels made up of trustees, but there was also, you know, an informal chat with the outgoing director. There was a session with staff and, you know, it happened quite swiftly in the end, but it was a thorough process and I was yeah. appointed in around 
this time actually of the year. So October, November 2019. And then I started in January 2020. And, you know, I could see from the process that they were looking for someone who was really clear about strategy, what the kind of future challenges and opportunities were, how a grant maker like John Elliman Foundation might respond to those. They definitely resonated with what I was kind of saying in terms of how do you build a more kind of outward facing, impact oriented organisation that looks at the entirety of its asset base in order to deliver its aim. So how do we do more and better with our investing? How do we do more and better with our grant making? How do we do more and better with our voice and, and other kind of assets and tools that funders and charitable grant makers have to hand? And, you know, we'd had a bit of staff turnover. Uh, It wasn't just the previous director that had left or was in the process of leaving. A couple of other staff had handed in their notice. So there was something about how do we manage the transition as we kind of lose institutional memory? And, you know, how do we build a new image or vision rather of what comes next for the foundation And there was quite a lot that we were doing that was internal and external facing. And I had grand 100-day ambition of these were the things that I was going to do in my first 100 days as a CEO. And the one thing I didn't plan for was a pandemic. No, a lot of people didn't. Do you, I mean, (laughs) did you get a sense of 300 people, they put you through quite a process, um, you survive all of that and you get the role. Do you remember the day you received the call to say you got it and and how you felt? Yeah, I do. And I'm, I don't know if I should share this. It seems a bit silly, but I actually have it like in my diary as like a little reminder to myself each year. And I think that speaks to the fact that it was something I, you know, as I say, I went in confident, but I wasn't expecting it. I really wanted it, but I knew it'd be competitive and it was. And, um, you know, I got a really good sense of the organisation through the interview process. I think people need to remember that when we're being interviewed, we're also interviewing the organisation. We're discerning for ourselves whether there is connection and a way in which you can see yourself into the role and the organisation. And so I felt very positive about the foundation, the trustees that I'd met. I think by the end of the process, I'd met five of the then nine trustees or eight trustees. So I'd met most of the trustees as part of the process. And I felt like in the interviews, I'd been able to unequivocally be myself. I didn't feel like I'd needed to kind of pretend to be something I wasn't. I felt really comfortable and confident um, during the process. I'd had one kind of, when I look back on it now, I reflect on it more negatively whereas at the time I used it as a kind of way of motivating myself because a recruiter kept calling me her wild card and at the time I was like yes wild cards win Wimbledon I can do this whereas afterwards (laughs) I realized that was actually quite charged in ways that are not that helpful just by dint of like my race age and gender just to be explicit about that yeah but you know when I got the offer I had a lovely chat with our then chair Hugh and it felt kind of unbelievable and I can remember where I was I can remember who I spoke to immediately after being told and I can still remember how I feel and as I say I have a little reminder to myself each year in my diary (laughs) yeah 
Lovely. And you're young. This is a sense you got from the, the words of the recruiter, younger than the rest of the candidates, potentially. And do you think that actually, in terms of your themes, in terms of what you want to fund, actually helps you? You know, I, I, I think we can always end up in binaries. Like, there is no one best way of doing anything. There's no one better way of doing anything. There's always ways in which some things work and some things don't. I was really fortunate that John Elliman Foundation had been explicit in its recruitment pack about being very open to first-time CEOs or directors in our case, because we use the title director rather than CEO. And so I think that in itself, like the fact that they were open to bringing someone in who had potential rather than the exact same experience in another organization made a huge difference. And I think that whilst I was younger than the other people interviewed, I had lots of relevant experience that I was able to bring into the process and share with the foundation and the trustees who were interviewing. And they liked what they heard. They could see that that's what we needed. And, you know, the rest is history, as they say. So, I think that it wasn't like it was a secret. Everyone knew that I had the experience that I had, I had the potential that I had, and then they were able to use that to make the decision that they made. And taking a step back and just going back to your youth and childhood, and so did you grow up in the Midlands by any chance? I did, yes. So I grew up in a village in Leicestershire, and we're just, we're off the A5, and we're between Leicester and Coventry, and it's, um, yeah, a lovely place to have grown up. I was very lucky. And you went to Dixie Grammar School and then on to University of Sheffield. Good experience, like happy at school, happy to go to university, a little bit of out away from home, but not too far away from home. Yeah, I, I always enjoyed school. I was very kind of active and engaged with my school life and university too. I definitely chose a university that meant that I could leave home rather than commute. And that was very important. I was very fortunate that I had two older sisters who could provide good cover for a decision that I took, which was just to go for it and, you know, select universities that meant that I wouldn't commute and they weren't quite in that same position. So I was very lucky to be able to be the first one of my sisters who could do that with fewer restraints. I would say school was overall positive, but actually I look back now and realise that there were some really, really awful things that happened. I did go to grammar school and I, um, it was a fee-paying grammar school and I was definitely made to understand when um, there were kind of financial issues with things not being paid at that school during the time of 9-11 and I think that that was very poorly handled. I've always gone to Church of England schools, no issue with that whatsoever, but I think that, you know, it was quite an ostracising time in terms of, you know, at that point I, I was grew up as a Muslim and I was practising the faith and it was a quite trying time at times but it was also a lovely experience too and I got a really good education in many ways. And that like ignorance or teachers unable to deal with the situation like just causing you to feel really uncomfortable what was, what was the Certainly sort of ignorance and I think kind of racism and just a lack of care and compassion I would say. And your parents in terms of they they were fully committed to your education and what 
they weren't as wealthy as the other parents that were sending their kids to that school? Was that Did you feel poorer than those other children? Is that what it was? Yeah, and look, I don't want to kind of, you know, it's not kind of this big kind of, oh, poor, woe is me story at all. And obviously, you know, I don't want to kind of overshare in terms of like, I'm not my parents, it's not my story to share. But yeah, my parents, you know, were committed to our education um, and they did what they always I'm sure what they thought was best. Mm. And is there anything about your childhood that kind of points to you ending up in the career that you've ended up, end up in, in terms of caring about issues and wanting to make a difference? Is if we look back to childhood and go, yeah, there, there were there were stuff the way I was brought up or you know interacted with the world. Definitely, I think that kind of culture and ethos and principles really of like charity and giving both in terms of how I was brought up in a religious context, but also in a family context was really important. Like we were taught to give and to commit to others in our kind of community and wider society. So I think that was always something that was there in different forms. It was something that we learned at home, but we also learned through school. And, you know, I have really vivid and positive memories of growing up and being involved in different like charity causes be that through school or through home life and I was thinking recently actually and I was thinking about this podcast and I checked something because I thought no I couldn't have done that that doesn't seem right but so I'm born in August and on my 16th birthday and I had to go back and check this because I thought I might be making it up but my 16th birthday was on a Wednesday and the first like formal piece of volunteering I ever did was on was at West Leicestershire Mind, which is a mental health charity, and it was the Wednesday Arts Group, and that was what I did on my sixteenth birthday. I went to and did my first bit of formal volunteering at the Wednesday Arts Group at West Leicestershire Mind, and it's something that I then went on and carried on doing for like two three years and more well, two years and. Um, enjoyed immensely alongside other formal volunteering because you had to wait you had to be 16 that's when you could get your like dbs checks as it is now although back then it was crb i think and um yeah i've got all of that in place and i was just waiting patiently to turn 16 so i could be part of this group and i did that on my 16th birthday and it was brilliant i'm sure i did other things of course i'd be with my family but interestingly that's the thing that i remember most from that day so i think you know i prefect position which was about kind of communities and charity and things like that so I think it's always been something that I cared about deeply and then when I was at university I was really actively involved in the students union in terms of being part of the welfare sabbatical officers work and the remit of that office and did lots of volunteering and was involved in lots of different things and yeah I I think it wasn't a huge surprise that this would be the career that I would pursue but I think it's worth noting as well that it's not like I had a roadmap I didn't really know what a career like this would involve and I've been really fortunate that at different points in my career particularly after you know when I moved to what was then the big lottery fund but is now the National Lottery Community Fund I had some really incredible line managers who have just been very good at like guiding me and giving me a sense of what the art of the possible is and also encouraging my own sense of 
aspiration for myself. And I, there are definitely two line managers in particular who I think have really helped me think through what I could do in this sector and what my career could be. If we go back to your time at um, Sheffield, Sheffield University, so science, particularly genetics, microbiology, did you love those subjects? <laughs> no, no, uh, no, not quite. I'm very much a generalist, Mark. So I'm just someone who, well, I guess in lots of subjects, I'm not a specialist. And I was put onto a science track at school. But, you know, even if you look at my A-levels, I did biology, chemistry, English Lit and French and I dropped English Lit at AS level. So I think that in itself tells you I'm a bit of like, I'm just a bit of everything kind of person. Um, and I'm very comfortable now in my generalism. But no, I, I got put onto a science track and, you know, I did want to leave home for university and it was easier just to leave home to do a science degree. I think that was um, a, a better way of, of going about that too. And, you know, I enjoyed my degree. I enjoyed three years I had at Sheffield and I learned lots through my degree and through the university experience. And I hope that some of those skills are now what I'm able to use and apply in my career. So it's not been, you know, all for nothing in any way. But no, I, I don't think I'm a kind of specialist, passionate expert in genetics and microbiology in any way. I, I think if I were to do it again, I, I'd go down the more kind of social policy, public policy, law kind of way but you know it's not like I've stopped myself from being able to pursue those interests through my career by doing a science degree. And those other students that you studied with how would they just have described you how they how would they remember you as focused on social justice particularly empathic empathetic or how yeah how would they describe you? Oh what an interesting question I would hope that people would just describe me as someone yeah who who was passionate about things like that I cared about and um, always open to having those kinds of discussions and hearing other people's viewpoints and sharing my own. I think that people would have described me as someone who enjoyed being, you know, around other people, quite sociable, quite fun, I would hope. Definitely, you know, hardworking when I needed to be and wanted to be. And yeah, I think people would have noticed that the, the things I cared about uh, were around how we could do more and better for for those that needed that and for ourselves actually I think there is something about wanting to support people to be their own best selves and and I think that came through at, at university and you know I was very lucky I, I had really good connections through my course but also through the volunteering activities that I did and I had like a job while I was at university and I was definitely someone who had like really strong networks, but not all of them kind of concentrated in one place. I think there was a kind of, um, it was slightly spread out and I got a really wide range of perspectives, which actually probably is something that I still do now. I think I'm quite committed to trying to have that uh, breadth and depth of perspectives. And if we had to sort of say you were either introverted or extroverted, so I think people would immediately assume I'm extroverted. I'm slightly dodging the question because actually I, I don't think, I, I, I understand the premise of the binaries of are you either or. I'm not an introverted person. I definitely think I'd, I'd say I'm more an ambivert. I think when I was younger, I was always like, yes, I'm an extrovert. And actually, as I 
as I think about it now, I realise I'm probably, yes, I'm extroverted, but I think I'm someone who's more kind of an ambivert and has tendencies around introversion and, you know, is comfortable, confident in, in group settings and can be kind of extroverted in those settings. I'm certainly not introverted because I don't find those things very overwhelming or, or kind of feel like I, I can't contribute. I used to joke, you know, I'm one of four and I'm from quite a big family. So you have to kind of figure out how to have a voice so that you get heard or you even get to say anything. So I guess there's an element of that kind of family dynamic that pushes you or pulls you towards extroversion. But yeah, I, I'd, I'd say I'm a bit of both. And I do like my own company and, and space to myself as well. I do need that as well. And so you're now a leader of people and you, you talk about some mentors at the National Lottery Community Fund and then being really important in your career. How are you finding leadership and, and kind of what sort of leader how, do you describe yourself as? I would hope that my leadership style is one that is around being generous, supportive and empowering ultimately. I think that I definitely want the people I work with, the people I lead, the people I manage to succeed, to feel successful, to feel joy and content in the work that they're doing. I feel that I'm definitely someone who is passionate in a very kind of positive way. I really care about the work that we're doing. And I think that that is something that I try and encourage in the people that I work with. I do like to understand what people's kind of motivations are and what, you know, compels them to do the work. I would say that I'm definitely a leader that is enabling. I like to get out of people's way. But equally, when I can see something isn't working, I like to work with people to figure out what might make it work better, whether that's like improvements in process, culture, and so on and so forth. Um, so, yeah, I, I, and, and actually, I think people would, would see that I, I enjoy leading. It's not something that I necessarily rush or run away from. And I think that matters. I think, you know, you do want to see someone who enjoys leading the responsibilities that come with that, the decisions that come with that, and, you know, can see someone who is inclusive and and supportive ultimately. And I'm always open to feedback and in improving the way that I lead. I can see that my own leadership style has evolved over time. But you know, I think if you have a joy in what you're doing, you tend to do it better than if it's something you feel is kind of thrust upon you and not something that you're particularly seeking out. Yeah. And you touched on this before, but you talked about having some well-developed thoughts around philanthropy, what you didn't like or what you thought could be improved, how you would do it. What What parts of philanthropy, what parts of sort of Grant making foundations, the world that you're now in, did you want to change? You know, I'll, I'll say at the very top here that I feel that philanthropy at its best has delivered some of the most important and significant kind of changes for society. And I know that's a really grand statement to make, but I think, you know, philanthropy has allowed things that are really integral and fundamental to how our society functions effectively. There's also a downside to it as well. And I guess for me, some of the things that I've wanted to ensure we 
are having a dialogue on and ultimately trying to evolve and improve are around grant making processes so how you can make those more modern effective open trusting transparent accountable and so on and so forth and then also our investing too it's yes it's about financial returns but also it's about the ethics and sustainability of how we invest and just being able to interrogate that so i think in some ways the easiest way i could sum up what i hope i do around you know how to ensure philanthropy and the work that John Elliman Foundation does is effective and impactful is rather than treating everything as like a we've done this full stop this means we have achieved what we needed to achieve making that full stop more of a dot 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 and recognizing that it's about that kind of continuous improvement and growth and you know I'm when I first came into kind of the world of grant making, my focus was very much on how do we think about this in a way that ensures our grant making is strategic and evidence-based and anchored in, you know, the sectors that we serve. And then as time went on, I realized more about the kind of power dynamics and how do we name those power dynamics and then work on ways of resolving them or at least reducing them if you can't resolve them in their entirety. And then fast forward further, other things that I started to notice about, yes, we have this kind of norm almost in terms of many foundations, John Elliman Foundation included, have endowments, those are invested in markets. And actually you get down to questions then about, well, okay, unfettered wealth creation are, you know, that's possibly at the root cause of many of the issues we then go on to support through our grant making. And so you have to kind of grapple with the ethics of the fact that you exist at all. And then you have to grapple with the ethics of the fact that you are continuing to exist through investment and investment in capital markets and, you know, whether capitalism is also a root cause for many of the issues that we're trying to address. And, you know, I think you can probably hear, I haven't got to an answer on any of these things that I've just mentioned here. It's just, that's what I'm now grappling with and considering. And so for me, I think the the overarching kind of situation I'm trying to think through as the leader of a philanthropic organisation is how do we ensure we're a modern, effective grant maker and increasingly it's more about like and are we necessary and are we delivering in the way that is most helpful in pursuit of the overarching aim that we have and how can we move towards being more helpful and you know I don't think we're doing a terrible job by any means it's just about this kind of mindset of how do you do more and better rather than just thinking we're not doing a terrible job full stop it's that dot 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 point I made and from the outside looking in, you guys are into a relational type of philanthropy. Because you, is it true that you you meet, you talk to those organisations you're looking to fund before you fund them? We do. We have a two stage process, and you know, even before you submit an application, I think we've got a really good pre application offer that is varied. And you know, we don't have a huge team. There's three in the grants team, and then I work on grants for part of my time. But we ensure that we're available to deal with pre-application inquiries and ideas people might have over telephone, email, 
meetings, drop-in sessions online, and, and, and also our kind of written guidelines and information on our website. And then if you do go into a formal application process, the first stage, if you aren't successful, you're always given feedback. And if you progress to the second stage, you submit another written application form, but we also organise a visit. Um, that's how we describe it. It's not an interview. It's a discussion about your application to us. And because we offer, as, as our kind of standard offer is core cost funding, we are using that visit and the application process as a whole to understand your organisation as a whole, because that's, you know, ultimately we might be partnering with a particular element of what you're doing, but we're partnering with the organisation because we're giving you core cost funding. And so, yeah, I think that we really do believe in a relational approach to our grant making. And I think we absolutely live that. But we, of course, are always thinking through how we can improve and enhance that too. We don't want to just assume that just because we've done it this way for X amount of time, it's good enough and there's nowhere else for us to progress to. Are there potential downsides? I'm just thinking in terms of you have your criteria, you have your theme, so you have this sort of your framework and then you, but you, you know, you go and relate to somebody. Um, I guess it'd be hard to like ignore your own, preferences i guess or like whether you like the human beings that you're standing in front of should we do it through algorithms who knows um and i know actually a couple of funders here in the uk have done some um algorithm-based assessment we're not at that point yet obviously the relational side of course it does mean that you can end up feeling like very bought in and you know i think this is where we your decision making processes matter we have we require a majority decision by our board and so, yes, you as the kind of person who did the visit, and that's usually one of our board members, but it can be a member of the team, might feel very kind of, we have to, but ultimately you need the buy-in of the entire board. Like there is a, not impartiality, but there is a distance as well as a closeness within our process that I think allows us to be discerning, which is one of our key values as an organisation. And then the other thing I would say is that I think we're very clear about, you know, the fact that there are organisations that we have funded multiple times over the years. And there are those organisations that we've never funded before. And we're very transparent about the figures relating to that. So, you know, broadly speaking, um, we've been tracking that now for the last uh, two, three years since I've been in post and we can see that it's it's pretty much a 50-50 split each year where it could be an organisation that we have funded before or the other kind of 50% could either be organisations that are applying to us for the first time and got through the first time or an organisation that has applied to us previously unsuccessfully and has now got through. So, you know, I think we avoid the potential for just funding the same people that we know and like. And then we can enhance that and improve that further by doing deeper analysis around things like diversity, equity and inclusion, for example, to see whether there are any kind of biases in our process that mean that we are, you know, rejecting organisations that are led through a more kind of diverse, equitable and inclusive lens in the work that in the decision making that we're doing. So, you know, I think there are ways in which through, you know, requiring 
majority board decisions, uh, monitoring diversity, equity and inclusion, monitoring the stats around who's never applied to us before, who has and so on and so forth that mean that we can slightly uh, guard against that. But it's, you know, you can't remove it entirely. Just in terms of your experience so far, like what's been the sort of worst day in the office? Like has it been a learning that you've derived from your time with the, the foundation? Like, Gosh, always hard to know how honest to be. And I do like to be honest. Worst day in the office. I'd say that in 2020, there were definitely moments at different points in various lockdowns where I just had those moments of thinking, are we doing enough? Are we being effective enough? Are we, you know, doing the right thing? when there is no clear route map that tells you if you are. I look back now and I think that we did, you know, we, we were effective during that time. So, yeah, I definitely had some moments during various lockdowns. But, you know, that's beyond just the professional side. It was just what we were grappling with personally too, isn't it, that then impacts that. You know, I will be honest, you know, in July this year, we did a consultation on our structure that led to staff moving on and we restructured and there were definitely really difficult days during that because you know it's a small team we had worked together very closely and they were people that had you know delivered great work for the foundation that have moved on now but we are in a situation where we have a new strategy and we need to we need a structure that allows us to deliver that strategy and the on a personal level, drawing on strengths, because that's always really difficult as a leader, being through similar with myself. And did you draw on the counsel of others, um, inspiration or just guidance and support from from people close to you during that period? Yeah, so I was very well supported by the trustee board and we had a working group specifically working with me on this. And so, you know, the decision was one that the board and I took. So it was not a decision in isolation. And Yes, I I do really believe in having a peer network and obviously you're kind of constrained in what you're able to share because obviously, you know, these processes are are really um, ones that need to be followed carefully. But certainly I've got peer support and I, I definitely made sure I scheduled in time where I just had peers that I could meet with, not even to speak with them about what was happening, but rather just to have space where you know, I almost didn't have to think about what was happening. And what excites you about the future in terms of the role, in terms of the foundation? Like what gets you, what makes you smile about the future? Mm, Lots is making me smile right now. I'm very excited about the fact that new team members are joining and the new structure is is starting to fall into place. We've had a wonderful interim team in place as well, as we have transitioned from the old structure to the new structure, it gives me a great deal of joy to know that our grant making has continued the particular kind of funding programs alongside our general grant making has all been happening um, as planned. We have still been, you know, evolving and, and working on different strategic strands of work, like the history project that I mentioned earlier, uh, but also discussions we're having about kind of you know, our time horizon as a foundation um, and just, you know, reviewing decisions around how long we should exist for. You know, it's it's great to see the way in which the organisation 
has gone through a difficult period, but still remains very committed and clear about what it needs to be doing in terms of the operational and the strategic. And I am really excited about um, the appointments that we're making and the appointments that we're yet to make. We still have two roles that we are still kind of interviewing for. And yeah, it's great. I'm really, um, I love building teams and hearing about people's aspirations and ideas and motivations. And I can't wait to kind of really get stuck into those and see where John Elliman Foundation goes next. Safina Ahmed, massive thank you for joining me on Purposely. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to Purposely Podcast. Please subscribe and leave a review. I hope you like what you're hearing, because I sure do.